Hello, and welcome back to On the Nose, the Jewish Currents podcast. I'm Arielle Angel, Editor-in-Chief of Jewish Currents, and I'm so excited to debut a new column today called Chavruta. Let me tell you what it's all about. Chavruta refers to the traditional method of Jewish study, where a pair of students studies a text together. For this column, we're pairing a Torah scholar with an activist or thinker. The activist will bring a question from their work, and the Torah scholar will pull traditional Jewish texts that speak to this question for them to study together. We're hoping this will give us an opportunity to think more deeply, not just about the legal and economic and strategic questions we're facing, but also about the spiritual and ethical dimensions of these questions. For our first installment, we've got a fascinating conversation between rabbinical student and community organizer, Alan Lipson, and two members of the nation's first debtors union called the Debt Collective, Eleni Shermer and Sparky Abraham. Eleni Shermer is a writer and postdoctoral researcher at Concordia University's Social Justice Center in Montreal, and Sparky Abraham is the Debt Collective's legal strategist and the founder of Jubilee Legal, a debtor's rights law practice in California. The Debt Collective is an organization that has purchased and canceled tens of millions of dollars in medical student probation and payday loan debt, organized the country's first student debt strike, and worked with congressional Democrats to introduce debt forgiveness legislation. For each installment of this column, there's going to be an edited, written version of the conversation, as well as a study sheet, so you can study the same text in your own chavruta or with your own group. You can find all these resources by going to bit.ly slash debtchevruta. Chevruta is spelled C-H-E-V-R-U-T-A. And we'll also put the link in our show notes. But after we recorded this conversation, we realized that probably the best way to consume this was audio, which preserves the rhythm of the study itself. Somehow we didn't anticipate that. So forgive the audio quality on this episode. We'll do better next time. If you like this column or if there's something you think we can improve, please let us know. Also, if you think you'd be the right Torah scholar for a future conversation, or if you're an activist or thinker with a question you'd like to explore in Jewish text, definitely drop us a line at editor at jewishcurrents.org. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy this new column. Here we are together, and I thought we could start out if the two of you both could introduce yourselves and say a little bit about what's bringing you to this collaboration and what some of the questions that are on your mind. I'm Sparky Abraham. I am a legal strategist with a debt collective. I'm also a consumer debt lawyer. I've been helping people with issues related to debt for almost eight years now. And I'm thrilled to have this conversation. I feel like one of the things that has been the most helpful edifying, inspiring for me in doing this work has been, you know, being able to connect the work and issues to like broader historical contexts and bigger movements, bigger timelines to kind of take it out of, you know, the narrow tunnel vision that that we all often get in when we're dealing with like our own debt to see, like we like to say, like, it's not only that you're not alone right now with your debt and other people in the current system. But dealing with debt is something that can connect people across timelines, across societies, across eras, is, is really kind of comforting to me in my soul. So I'm, I'm excited about this. I agree with what Sparky's saying. My name is Eleni. I am 
an organizer with the Debt Collective. And some of what drew me into the work in the Debt Collective, the questions that I think are really central to our conversation today, which is what is debt and how does it become this means of social control, of moral order that enables violence, sanctifies violence, justifies coercion, all of these questions, you know, I think my entry point into debt was probably like so many people's, but reading Dave Graber's book, he has some great way of saying something like the basis of debt's mechanism of control is in some ways the fact that we don't really know what it is. When we talk about debt, it's sort of that ambiguity of what is it? On the one hand, it's what someone doesn't have, but it becomes what another person has. This sort of really changes on the perspective, whether it's a credit or whether it's a debt, it's all it's also in flux. And to kind of spend some time digging into that together. And like Sparky said, to kind of see this as like a historically and socially constructed regime is, I think, incredibly, incredibly helpful for organizing purposes, because that's exactly what we're trying to draw out is that debt is a man-made thing and, and has been made over and over again in different ways in different times. And what does that mean for us now today? My name's Alan. I am a student and teacher of Torah and studying in various yeshiva settings and rabbinical school for several years now. Also coming from a background in finance and organizing. So it's amazing to have this collaborators and thinking through some of these big questions. I also went back and, and read David Graeber's debt, which was the first time for me to prepare for this conversation and found myself asking some of these really big questions too. So in the Jewish tradition, the word for debt is chova, which is linked to chiv, obligation. So literally any obligation that Jews have not to eat bread on Passover or to keep Shabbat or to light candles is referred to in this framework of debt slash obligation. And so both from a Jewish and political perspective, it feels like uh, there is a lot at stake. Sparky, you sent over a few thoughts you wanted to bring to the table. Do you want to just say a word about them now? Yeah, of course. And a good moment to say it like right after Graver, because I think that they're all motivated from from my reading of that book too. And just after your point about the language, right? Like so much of what Graver talks about is, is the sort of different forms of relations around debt. Like there's the relations of hierarchy and the relations of community and the relations of exchange and, and how that actually looks different. So I think that my questions were kind of in that vein. I wanted to kind of think about, okay, what is a debt? What counts as a debt? When, if ever, is a debt unjust? When can we refuse to pay? What's the role of, of the state in enforcing a debt? What kind of violence can be used, if any? And then my broader question is really, what's the same and different about our current moment in terms of debt? So many of us are in debt in a way that I'm honestly not sure if that's new or not to have so many people in debt for the sorts of things that we are in debt for. I'm excited to talk about it. Such good questions. So let's let's <laughs> dive in. I will say a lot of the Jewish discussion around debt has focused on the sabbatical year, the, the Shemitah cycle, where in the biblical period, all debts were forgiven every seven years. I specifically chose not to focus on that partly because it's been done by many excellent scholars like Rabbi Joel Jacobs, among others, but also because it, it can feel very different. It's, it's in an agricultural society. And so I wanted something that was familiar enough to us that we could recognize ourselves to it, but also strange enough that 
that might force us to re-examine some of our own assumptions. So this is a tshuva from Rabbi Isaac Bar Sheshet Perfect, the Rebash. The tshuva, literally an answer, is a rabbinic Q&A, sort of like an Dear Abby. Some sort of petitioner writes a question to a rabbi. The rabbi writes a long and detailed response, sometimes even a couple of words, drawing on precedent, drawing on particular textual sources. I love the tshuva literature because it's dialogical, it's narrative, it's psychological. And just from a, a scholarly and materialist perspective, you, you're able to get this depth of emotion that it's really hard to match. So a word or two about the Ribash, those are his initials, his, his, his nickname, born in Christian Spain in the early 1300s, probably grew up as a merchant, became a leading judge in his community, first in Barcelona, then in Zaragoza. Notably, he was imprisoned for charges against him to the Christian authorities. Not very clear what that was. But he and several other leading scholars of the Jewish community of Spain spent almost a year in prison before they were ultimately proven innocent. This was a time of rising Christian anti-Semitism during the, the Reconquista. And in 1391, about 10 years after this letter was written, there was a series of extremely violent anti-Jewish riots. Around 200,000 Jews were either converted or forcibly exiled to mainly North Africa and Portugal. The Rivash was among them, so he, he finished up his life in, in Algeria. But in terms of this letter itself, written in around 1380, I will say this text has not been fully translated to the best of my knowledge. And so we're really looking at it as explorers with a set of fresh eyes. We're going to see some of these very central themes that are still extremely relevant today. Imprisonment, intercommunal conflict, Christian hegemony, the relation to the state. And we're going to have to ask what, what is similar and what is different. So with that note, let's jump in. In a sort of traditional Jewish fashion, I'm going to ask each of you to read the passages aloud. And at each point, we'll pause, we'll visit some of the, the specifics, get your, your running comments and, and questions as we go along, and then circle back at the end to, to ask, okay, what are our big takeaways here? Does someone want to start off with number one, the question? Okay. Question. Reuven borrowed from Shimon and legally committed himself according to the law of the Alfarda. The Christian government of Aragon enforced that law. If one didn't have any available assets, then one would be physically seized because of what he owed. Now Shimon, the lender, demanded his loan money from Reuven, and Reuven didn't have it. Shimon requested that Reuven be physically seized on account of the debt he owed. But Reuven, the borrower, claimed that physically seizing him would be illegal, since within Torah law, we don't find anywhere the idea that a Jewish person can be physically seized into bondage. So the judge, Rabbi Alitzani, asked me who the law goes with. Okay, just a couple of clarifying points. The names Reuven and Shimon are basically the sort of John and Jane Doe of rabbinic literature, but we have the situation with the law of the Alfarda. Now, I did a bit of scholarly research. Alfarda comes from Arabic. It was a tax leveled by the Christian government against Jews and Muslims. So my question to you both would be, can we just get our heads around what is the case? How would you put it into your own words? Well, Reuven has borrowed money 
from Shimon and hasn't paid him back. But the reigning laws, which are Christian in nature, say that if one doesn't have money to pay, uh, then you, you, if you can't pay back a loan, you, have, you can be physically seized. And so Shimon is invoking that law and demanding that Reuben pay him back. And when Reuben can't, he demands that Reuben be physically seized. But Reuben contests saying, like, that's not the, the Torah law. The Torah law suggests that would be illegal. The Torah says that a Jewish person can't be seized into bondage. I had a question about this part of the story, which is that the text says that Reuben legally committed himself according to the law of the Alfarda. And it's not clear to me reading this if if what that means is that the equivalent now would be kind of like a choice of law provision or something. Like, have they agreed beforehand about the application of this particular provision? So I don't, I don't know if, if there's any clarity to be gotten there. Yes, I'm so glad you asked. It seems to me, particularly from the Hebrew, the situation is that Shimon and Reuven have made an agreement in advance. If Reuven cannot repay, then he is going to go to jail. So this is something they both consented to at the outset. So my question for you both would be, how is this case similar to or different from your own experiences with debt organizing? I think that the form of this question and a response are a form that I'm always trying to get people to think in the direction of, which is to say one line around debt is, well, you borrowed it, you agreed to it, so you've got to pay it or you've got to do it, you know, basically in a way that writes out what the content of that agreement is. And so the question in that context seems to be like, is there something that you can't do in terms of enforcing a debt, even if somebody has agreed to it in advance? And that's a question that I'm constantly asking and also arguing about as an attorney to say, yeah, maybe the contract said this thing, but contracts can't say that. That's illegal. That's unenforceable, which I think a lot of people find counterintuitive, but it is in fact the way that our legal system often works. So like Sparky, what you're saying in that case is that there might be the Aragon government enforcing this sense that if you borrowed something, you have to pay it back. But that precludes the fact that there's actually some sort of superseding ideas. In this case, the Torah law that says you can't conscript people into bondage because they didn't pay something for any reason, actually. Yeah. You know, this is extremely common at the debt collective. This is like basically every single debt situation we deal with is that people are being forced to paying something that they don't have the means to pay and are resisting. And oftentimes it's not with a kind of moral righteousness. Often it's with a material reality. We say we can't pay and we won't pay. <laughs> but this is something a bit different. It's like we can't pay and we shouldn't have to pay. We'll see what the Rebash has to say about the ruling. But just a couple of themes I'm hearing. One is the question of legitimacy. When When is an agreement legitimate? To what is consent, right? So we'll keep those in mind as we move forward. But let's see what the Rebash has to say. So this is the answer. The laws with Reuven the borrower, because a person cannot place a condition on themselves to be physically seized and put themselves in bondage, or that others could give them physical harm, or that the court could coerce them. Even dealing with the case of a hired wage worker, the Talmud writes, a hired worker can walk off the job even in the middle of the day, 
And it doesn't even need saying that a condition that one be locked up in prison, quote, a dungeon of those who sit in darkness, unquote, has no legal force. Even regarding a similar case when the court impounds a debtor's possessions, the Talmud teaches, we make financial arrangements for a debtor. That is, we give him food for a month, clothes for a year, a bed, a mattress, his shoes, and his Teflon. And if he's an artisan, we give him two of each and every tool of his trade. And the Torah also says, a hand mill or an upper millstone shall not be taken in pawn, for that would be taking someone's life in pawn. Given that, how could one possibly pawn out their body, which they need in order to seek out a living in the marketplace and the streets? So the claim that Shimon the lender made, that the law of the kingdom of Aragon is a legitimate law, doesn't apply here in the least. It's generally neither the law of the kingdom of Aragon, nor a law at all, that a person should be physically seized for the sake of a debt. Only the Alfarda has this rule. So if anyone makes condition to go into debt for a loan according to this law, the ruling of our Torah is that this condition has no legal force. Incredible. A lot to unpack there. Just a couple of quick comments. This particular case around a hired wage worker, it's a very famous case, which is drawn on in subsequent Jewish labor law. Basically, if someone says, I was hired to work for four hours from 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. at noon, they walk off the job. You still have to pay them half of the money that they were entitled to for the entire day. To fill in, by the way, our Jewish ritual garments, which indicates this sort of severance package or consolation prize being given to the debtor is not just a physical possession. It also involves some sort of emotional or spiritual needs. So given all of that, my question for you both would be, how are these two examples, the worker and the debtor, how are those those helpful for thinking about the kind of debt that you experience? And how might they be a little bit unhelpful or, or misleading? I really appreciate the analogy to the hired worker. So much of the debt that people are in now is debt that is replacing insufficient wages. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think that one of the ways that I've come to think about debt is that so much of our debt is a claim on future labor, right? We've sold our future labor <laughs> for something that we need now. Even just the, you know, the contents of the severance package, let's say, are pretty interesting. The artisan is giving two of each. When the one garment gets threadbare, there'll be another to replace it. I thought that was really interesting and just sort of the inverse of the conditions that we find ourselves in today, that debtors oftentimes have this kind of basic sustenance swiped out from them. You have social security garnished. You have houses put liens on or the deeds sold off. You can have your water shut off. People who borrow money to go to law school and then can't pay their loans back can be disbarred or have their license removed or the more common kind of less direct, but like withholding people's transcripts in student debt. Being indebted is a license to take away that kind of provision. And what's more, people go into debt in pursuit of social welfare to get healthcare, to get housing, To get an education, they're becoming indebted for trying to provide social welfare. And then when they can't pay for it, they're punished. This is sort of the inverse situation here. I feel ambivalent as a scholar here, right? On on one hand, all of the potentially radical conclusions that that, that you're you're sharing are inherent in, in the text, right? I think that's a clear surface level reading. For example, educational debt doesn't really come up because... Education is provided for through communal taxes of tzedakah. 
even this the case of the hired worker, that's not a unanimous opinion in the, the Talmud. It is pushback against. I'll also say the literature we see in Maimonides, in the, the classical code of the Shulchan Aruch, they assume this sort of fundamental balance of equals between lender and borrower. It's clear that they're talking about a, a pre-capitalist society. And so I don't even know what they would have to say to these massive financial arrangements of debt that we see today. Are they even talking about the same thing? Mm. And then finally, as we're about to see, the Rivash himself runs into some resistance when he actually tries to put a little bit of these principles into practice. So I want to turn to part three, which I think is really fascinating and continue some of these, these questions as they come up. Okay, Elena, you want to take this? Yes. So the truth is that in our city, Saragossa, where the Rivash served as honorary rabbi, the judges order the physical seizure of borrowers when they're in debt, basing themselves on a communal decree. Furthermore, the community laid down what they called an enactment of the court, that even without a debt, any person could be physically seized for any claim made against them, or to give property as security against the claim. And I tried to stop them from enforcing this degree since it's against Torah law. And they said, this is a market ordinance to guard against deceivers and to make sure that borrowers still have access to loans, literally in order not to shut the door against borrowers. So I left them to their custom. But in any case, it's possible to say that if a borrower is assumed to have assets and flees, then it might be allowed for the court to coerce him and imprison him. Okay. Once again, just clarification before we jump in. This principle, in order not to shut the door against borrowers, in Hebrew, is a sort of counterintuitive idea. The concept is, if we make it too easy on the borrowers and too hard on the lenders, the lenders won't want to give out money at all. So the classic example of this is the sabbatical year, right? If, if lenders know that they won't be able to collect their money, there will be a cancellation of debts. They had lose all incentive to lend the money. Therefore, the rabbis set aside that principle in order ultimately to make things better for poor people. It's this sort of public policy prescription. So with that, I want to ask, what do you both make of this community leadership's argument? Do they sound familiar? How do they match up with today's discourse on debt? Oh my God, you go back to the 14th century and you just hear the same stuff. <laughs> <laughs> this is a very well-trod argument used by lobbyists for payday lenders to say, oh, if you restrict us down to only several hundred percent interest on loans, that means we'll be able to make fewer loans. And then people who use our loans to pay their rent and get their medicine and stuff won't be able to get it. So actually you're hurting the people here trying to help by not letting us make massive profits off of them. Very, very familiar. It's interesting because I think that it prescribes or at the very least assumes a continuation of some form of economy where debt is necessary for people to meet their needs. And I don't know if that looked the same then as it looks now, but that's one thing that, that I find very frustrating and depressing about it now. I guess one thing that stuck out to me was the explicit distinction between how debtors with assets are treated relative to debtors without assets, which is also developed in the more in the, the next chunk that we're going to read. But I mean, that's interesting because I mean, there's all kinds of interesting sort of sociology looking at when debt becomes good and when debt becomes bad. 
And for some people, what allows debt to be a kind of asset to leverage more wealth and under what conditions debt is nearly punitive. Yeah, so interesting. To some extent, it feels like a lot of these points are rationalizations in either direction. Like when we're being punitive, we don't want to necessarily come out and say we're being punitive. But part of what Rebosh was getting at with the tools and stuff, too, is like, well, you know, what's even the point of this? It doesn't do anybody any good. It's just punitive. But then this point is also like, well, I don't know, maybe we have to punish people because otherwise, you know, they're going to be getting off too easy and then we're not going to be making enough money. I will say my first read of the line about the borrower with assets felt morally intuitive for a moment. If someone has the money to pay it back and they run away, then of course you're going to punish them. I mean, this kind of goes to some of the discourse, particularly that was like really strong around the um, foreclosure crisis, which is this idea of like the strategic defaulter, mm-hmm. which is someone who has the ability to pay and just doesn't want to, and they're just trying to get out of their obligation however they can. And I personally, and in, in my many clients that I've had over the years have never encountered somebody with such a simple situation. <laughs> I'm not sure that they exist. Trump maybe would be the example. Well, maybe, but you know, even if they do exist, my thinking on it is always your lender is doing everything that they can legally and sometimes illegally to collect as much money from you as possible. And they're also charging you based on the idea that you're going to do everything you can to pay them as little money as possible. So why would you do any different? <laughs> and we're, we're going to get to that question of the limits of enforcement in the next session. The other question to flag is, what exactly do we make of Thiribash's reasoning here? There are really two possibilities. On one hand, he's convinced by the Cajal, the community's case, that we need to make lending easier so that borrowers will have access to money. Or maybe he just doesn't have communal power, so he gives in and offers this after the fact justification. Historically, the, the Rivash actually was involved in several conflicts with this community, was nearly deposed from his post. So something to keep in the back burner. But let's move on to number four, another rich situation we have going on here. Sparky, I think you're up. Yeah. If the borrower is poor, however, and has nothing left to pay, the matter is clear that it's forbidden to physically seize him and afflict his spirit. Since surely even walking by a borrower to shame him into paying is forbidden, just as the Talmud teaches, how do we know that one who has lent his fellow a sum he knows his fellow can't repay is forbidden to pass by him? Because it's written in the Torah, do not be to your fellow like a creditor. And how can a court be legally required to assist the lender in a task forbidden by the Torah? All the more so since the condition to be physically seized if one can't pay a debt or anything resembling it has no legal force, as I've written above. And I can't see any other angle from which it would be lawful to physically seize a borrower since he has nothing to repay with. Unless the borrower swears to put himself in jail and not leave until his debt is paid. This is like the case of house arrest, where a person swears to be physically seized as part of an oath. Okay, a lot to unpack there. I want to say a word about this Brita, the source from the Talmud, that walking by a borrower to shame him is forbidden. Don't be a creditor. This is quoted, again, by all the major legal authorities in their introductions to the laws of debt. They then go on to explain exactly how one collects a debt. So this, this was never and could not be legally binding in a system where debt enforcement is practiced because practically it makes it extremely difficult. So I'm curious on your reactions to that source, the reading of the Rivash, and this conclusion that that he ultimately comes to. 
I will say I did kind of like the cheeky turning of creditor into a pejorative. Like, oh, don't be such a creditor, man. <laughs> you know, I'd like to bring that back. This is like so rich for me. I'm really like, I don't even know where to start. Since surely even walking by a borrower to shame him into paying is forbidden. That is such a, I think, a more nuanced and realistic understanding of the psychology of debt mm-hmm. than mm-hmm. I think we often get now. I mean, it makes me think about in terms of like contemporary American law and debt collection law, we really often have to jump through a lot of hoops in order to show some concrete financial harm to somebody from what would otherwise obviously be illegal debt collection tactics in order to like get in the door in court to make them stop. Whereas this would be a wildly progressive understanding for an American court to take of what the effect of being in debt is to somebody and is far more correct than I think what we generally get. Yeah, I thought it was interesting by walking by a borrower to shame him. Then there's this sort of the clause that's inserted into pain that the shame is there's a prong to it. It's it's trying to prod people to motivate some kind of action that the shame would be motivating. This actually comes up in a, a ultra orthodox Chiva of the 20th century. So the case is a guy lends money to a fellow congregant in a synagogue. And he wants to know, how can I continue to sit next to him in, in the synagogue when I'm walking before him, right? He's going to be embarrassed. Do, do I have to go to another synagogue? And mm. the, the rabbi writing back and winds up saying, oh, don't you really don't have to take that so literally. In fact, if you went to the other synagogue, that actually would also make him embarrassed. And in any case, the social pressure there is is very real. The other piece yeah. here too, though, is like starting with the first sentence, this is all for people who are poor and right. don't have any assets. And yeah. that kind of suggests, well, the beginning, it kind of seemed like you were saying there's no basis to physically seize a borrower regardless. Yeah. And then you kind of come back, well, I don't know, maybe if he has some stuff and he flees and some people do it that way. And now my conclusion is much more narrow sort of walks it back a little means testing might be okay (laughs) (laughs) right how radical is the revash really on one hand we have this situation where any debt enforcement or application of of power upon a worker is is in some sense against the spirit of of Torah law but he he seems very reluctant to go down there right the last paragraph like I have no idea how to square that with the rest of this passage (laughs) this last note about House arrest is, is particularly fascinating. Uh, he writes the word ostage in Hebrew characters, but it's a, a, a Catalan and, and, and French word. Basically, if a borrower could not pay off money in the time that was allotted, he would be restricted to a certain area of property and still have the power to go around asking people for money, but uh, otherwise confined in his freedom of movement. This was all undertaken in advance. The borrower would take an oath before receiving the money saying, if I can't pay back, I will voluntarily not leave my house until I have returned the money. Hmm. So it brings back this question of consent, right? The borrower is freely consenting to the arrangement of being a hostage. But is that real consent? I'm curious with this last point, which is to say that where a person swears to be physically seized as part of an oath that then becomes okay. It's not clear to me how that's different from the situation in in the case as presented, where it seemed like the person agreed to the application of the law 
Is it just that maybe they didn't do so in an oath? Yes, in the technical language, the, the Hebrew is different. It's a shvua, it is an oath to God, as opposed to a, a chiyuv, an obligation taken on to another person. Mm, okay, but interesting. I had an argument with a teacher about this. His take was that this is really a provision to give borrowers extra time in the case of a, a delayed shipment of goods or something like that. And it keeps the case in the hands of the court rather than the lender. The lender won't be sending over goons to work this guy over. A more cynical take is that the Rivash realizes he's going to have to come up with a, a heter. He's going to need to permit the enforcement of, of loans in some way, shape, or form. And so mm. this is his best shot to, to thread the needle of allowing some form of imprisonment while recognizing the needs of coercion. Do you buy this last little piece? In some ways, it really rings true because oftentimes what we find in our work is that people themselves, they are willing to walk themselves into the jail. Even when we talk to people who are sort of consciously aware that their loans are usurious, that they're unable to pay them back, and that they are planning to go on a debt strike, even these people will oftentimes say, you know, like I would pay it back. They want to be seen as sort of abiding in like a good faith negotiation. And, and that's like really, I think, the fundamental organizing project that we're engaging in is trying to help people say, like, you don't need to promise to dispossess yourself. You don't need to pledge to imprison yourself, to sort of imprison your future, imprison your money. And so the Rivash maybe offered this as a little loophole, a little provision, but I think it's actually the majority. The borrowers who swear to put themselves in jail is actually most borrowers. I mean, if you tell people like... The only way you can get money to eat is to swear an oath to put yourself in jail if you can't pay it back. Like, they're going to do it. <laughs> I mean, that whole first section about the fact that it's both kind of forbidden and just kind of like illogical, unreasonable in order to restrict people's person for not paying back a debt. Like, that's, you know, it's essentially counterproductive. Like, it's still very hard for me to then even through the middle section where he's kind of caveating to come back around to be like, well, you know, actually, maybe if somebody agrees with it, <laughs> then it's okay. <laughs> it is interesting because it would sort of seem that like the borrower gets to decide whether they're abiding under Torah law or not. But it, it's all it's all like fake, like fake agency. Right. I mean, this is the thing that's in common with what we see now is that there are all of these things in place, all these structures that make it seem like you're making choices that really looking at the material circumstances of things you are not making. It is not actually a choice. No, I 100% agree with you. I'm just trying to think about this just from sort of like a the theological point. Like if I was a rabbi mm -hmm. and I was like, well, Torah law says this and we must live under Torah law. Your job, your sort of vocation is to sort of decipher the importance of Torah law and why we should live our lives according to it. And then you just kind of write it away and I'm like, well, unless somebody decides they, they're willing to live under the Christian law, <laughs> and then that's fine. Like, it's, it seems actually like, it, I can't read it. I'm like, wow, that, is he just sort of undercutting faith there? I actually feel a lot of kinship to the Rebash here, not just because I, I'm studying to be a rabbi. He's caught between a, a rock and the hard place here, right? On one hand, he has his community who seems to be having a very rough time with him. He has the, the Christian government. Notice both the, the institution of, of Osage, of house arrest, and of the Alfarda, this confinement system, are Christian imposed. He's living under the government of America. So breaking that law has consequences. And he has his individual conscience. Also, the sources themselves, as he's noting, are, are not always crystal clear, right? There, there is an enormous literature in all of the codes and 
how Jews should collect their debts and how the communal local authorities can nudge people to do so. So it's it's not like he's completely ignoring the Torah here. It, it's not a crazy position textually, but morally, that's another question. What comes up for me is, is it possible and practical to live in a society that takes the Rivash's initial vision seriously, that is not founded upon some form of coercion in borrowing and lending money? What would that even look like? I'm tempted to take that back to Graver. And I think that the thing that's particularly bothersome for me about these systems is the degree to which they have overrun everything else. In other words, like, I think that if we were living in a far more egalitarian society, one in which people had the ability to provision themselves with like their basic needs and had the ability to relate to each other and to their neighbors on like a far greater level of equality and one in which your creditor actually, you know, does go to your same synagogue as opposed to, you know, my creditor is Citibank or something. I feel less offended or worried about the possibility of some reasonable coercion in terms of enforcing debts. I, I think that the punitive nature of it still doesn't make much sense to me, but some form of reasonable coercion, some form of restrictions that you can place on yourselves. I mean, this is just the basics of like contracts is that you can commit yourself to something in the future. The place where it goes off the rails for me is where you start getting into situations where the power is imbalanced between creditors and debtors, just like where the power is imbalanced between workers and bosses. That, I think, was where the problem comes in for me. And that's also potentially a way in which our situation now looks different and worse than what we're looking at here, even though it's all the same. It's all the same questions and arguments. I think also just one of the things that's just so different now, too, is like the securitization of claims become, you know, now what is one person's debt is, you know, another person's millions. And so I think that's also just a, makes the situation really different is that the conditions that, that Sparky's sort of pining for of greater equality are undermined by <laughs> the mechanism of debt because of how debt works in the financialized economy. One of the questions that I had when reading this and, and Sparky and I kind of had a few minutes pre-caucusing about it was to sort of, we're reading about the present moment. We have Rivash, we have the Talmud, and we have the Torah. And like the Talmud is interpreting the Torah, Rivash is interpreting the Talmud and the Torah, and we're now interpreting all three. But these original Torah law around debt comes from where? It depends who you ask in the traditional view from God, certainly from surrounding societies like the Babylonians and the, the Assyrians. But part of what's fun about about Shiva, about the responsive literature, is that it it sees law not as an originalist interpretation of, of, of a founding document, but of something that can grow and develop and refine itself over time. So what the Torah originally meant by that is often less important than what does that mean in our particular time and in our particular context. And I think that's mm-hmm. part of what the Rebesh is, is struggling with. Would you say this, this last hour has made you more or less confused? I think for me, one of the things that I really appreciate about this text and this dynamic is that it complicates the idea of what is the state 
It's like, what, what are we dealing with here? This is a question about Torah law for within Jewish community that is also set within like the power of violence of some broader Christian authority too. And then here's Rebosh like giving his opinion, which clearly some people just choose not to take. You know, it's like, it's, it's a little bit more complicated, I think, correctly than just like, oh, what what does the state think? It's like, oh, right. oh that's a that's a much deeper question. Although I do feel like maybe we are just doomed to keep having the same arguments over. Like this looks so familiar. Maybe what feels slightly different is that there's someone does have like a moral pillar of putting their hand on some authority and saying, maybe debt doesn't need to be a license to coerce. And not in every situation should we have debt be a license to coerce. I want more of that. I will say there's way more nuance here than what you would get in, say, like a Supreme Court opinion about that, which is which is interesting. And maybe that's a little bit encouraging to some extent. And I think the question from both an organizing and a religious perspective is how can we draw out these currents, right? This stream of opposition to state force and a, a moral vision of what a, what a society without that coercion could look like and actually bring it into greater life. Wish I had an answer, but I feel like the, the work y'all are doing out there is getting us a step closer. So really excited and, and, and grateful to have this, this chance of talking with you. Thank you so much, Alan, for selecting this text and kind of synthesizing it, giving excellent footnotes to it. Yeah, this, yeah. Was, this was so cool. Yeah. <laughs>